If you have your Bible, open and find 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. This morning we're going to pick up where we left off last week, which means we're going to pick up in chapter 8. Greg Key did a great job last week teaching chapters 4 through 7. Um, We're going to pick up where he left off. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning, chapters 8 through 15, all right, so seven chapters worth of um, Scripture. So these chapters, if you, if you were able to read them ahead of time, and I hope you, you at least gave it uh, the old college try, um, you, you know that uh, these, these chapters cover the, the later years of Samuel's life uh, as a, and his role as a judge in Israel and the rise uh, of the first king of Israel, Saul, um, and, and certainly there is much more about um, Saul's life in the chapters after our passage today, um, but because uh, the death of Saul doesn't happen until the last chapter of 1 Samuel, but chapters 8 through 15 for this morning do sort of convey the arc of his whole kingship, um, from the time he's anointed king to the to declaration from God that the kingship is being removed from him. Um, uh, there are a lot of good things for us to consider in, in these chapters, and given how much ground there is to cover, I'm confident we can't think carefully about everything that there is to see, but I trust the Lord to guide our thoughts. I asked you to open the first, uh, to chapter 12, even though we're starting at chapter 8, because I want us to get a feel. Um, I want to read a passage that helps us get a feel for our whole passage, uh, and I think maybe reading Samuel's farewell address can do that. Um, we'll read the whole chapter. So if you found First Samuel chapter 12, follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness to this, uh, this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And, and they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, Uh, Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought um, your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. Because we have forsaken the Lord, and we have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubiel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, come against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, and now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold the Lord has set a king over you, if you will fear the Lord and serve and and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great. 
which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid, for you have, you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you, do, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. All right, let's pray. Lord, um, I didn't pray at the beginning, and, and had I, I would have asked you in the words of the song we sang, would you tune our hearts this morning to sing your praise? We need your help. We come in here, uh, we come in here broken and frail and weak and sinful and wayward, um, and we need, we need the help of the Holy Spirit to, to tune our wayward hearts to be uh, singularly focused um, in mind and, and desire on you and in your praise and, and to come to your word. And when we come to this word, Lord, we confess to you that it is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we ask as we come to it this morning, Lord, would you give us, would you give us eyes to see the truth that you would have us to see in these many chapters? Would you give us not just eyes to see it, minds to understand it clearly, minds to understand your word to us. You did not, uh, when we say it, your, your word is, is clear, uh, you spoke to us. You desire that we know you through your word. So give us minds to understand and know you. Would you please uh, give us then hearts to embrace what we see and understand? And would you give us wills to obey what this passage uh, admonishes us to do. Would you give me the help that I need to teach? Would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word? And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you could tell from the tone of that farewell address that there's a bit of tension going on in this neighborhood of, of uh, 1 Samuel. We'll see that from the beginning. So that, that said, go ahead and turn back to chapter 8. Um, having a good bit to cover, I want to go ahead and tell you how we're going to divide it up. Uh, and then do our best to do that. Um, so if you're taking notes, here it is. Um, first, we're going to look at chapters 8 and 9, and, and we're going to see Saul's anointing and rise. Saul's anointing and rise. That's chapters 8 and 9. Basically, the move from we don't have a king in chapter 8 to now Saul is our king in chapter 9. So Saul's anointing and rise, chapters 8 and 9. And then, uh, in chapters 10 through 12, we're going to see Saul's early success. Saul's early success. It, in these chapters, it seems like good times. Uh, but this, this section ends with that farewell address that we just read, so you get the sneaking feeling that it's not going to be good times forever. At least it's like, whoa, man, it's going to be, if we do bad, like it's going to go bad. So, um, ten to twelve, though, is Saul's early success, and um, and then finally in chapters thirteen to fifteen, you'd be right if you got that sneaking feeling. We're going to see Saul's decline and fall. Um, Saul's foolishness and pride become very apparent, and the Lord removes the kingship from him. We'll be flying at that point, but that's what we're going to do. All right, so that's how we're going to approach it. So go back to chapter eight, and let's dive in and think first about Saul's anointing and rise. Before we, before we dive into chapter 8, though, it may be worth going back to some of what Greg covered last week uh, to get a little context uh, before, uh, that, that leads up to what we're going to see in chapter 8. 
You'll remember in the passage that Greg taught last week that uh, that whole story about the Philistines capturing the ark and, and it goes into the land of the Philistines um, and how the God did his thing through the ark and, and basically uh, plagues everywhere. that They passed it around from town to town to town because they couldn't stand it. Uh, it fin- and, the, and the Philistines basically had had enough after a while and they sent it back to Israel. Uh, and it's funny how in all that time, you're never told that once the, once the ark was captured and left Israel, they never, like, made a plan to go get it. Like, they never, they never told that, like, hey, we might want to try to get that thing back. They were just like, well, I guess it's gone. Um, but God did his thing, and, uh, and they got rid of it themselves, sent it back to Israel and when they, when the, you know, people in in that town saw the 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 the, the cart coming and the and the oxen or the cows or whatever, they're like, "Hey, it's it's back!" But they did they didn't know how to treat it, so seventy of them died when they tried to look into it. Uh, and they finally sent it to this place called Kiriath Jerim, and it stayed there for twenty years. All right, twenty years. I, I say that because that kind of gives us a time stamp uh, for what Samuel tells Israel in chapter 7 from last week. So he said in chapter 7, verse 3, if you're open there, in chapter 7, verse 3, uh, Samuel said, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. I point that out as context at the beginning of our section today in chapter 8 because you can sort of rightly surmise that the people of Israel had been worshiping and serving those foreign gods, the Baals and the Ashtaroth, uh, which were the gods of all the nations around them, for at least 20 years. For at least 20 years, if not more. That's a long time to be in in, Israel. in waywardness, in idolatry. And so that's a long time, I say that, to immerse your mind and immerse your heart and immerse your habits in, uh, in, in false worship, in falsehood. Um, and we see, that he, he, he t- well, the passage in 7.3 is like, if you're, Samuel's saying, put, put those things away. But I, what I think we're going to see in chapter 8 is that it is hard to change two decades of false worship and false, uh, falsehood, false thinking, and false habits. It's hard to change that overnight. When we come to chapter 8, we're told that Samuel was getting old and that he had made his sons um, judges in Israel, which, by the way, was not the way judges were chosen over Israel. If you read the book of Judges, who raised up judges? God raised up judges. It wasn't like Daddy said, okay, you're a judge. That's not how it happened. God raised them up, but Samuel, who was not a sinless one, uh, made, made his sons uh, judges, and his sons were wicked. And it caused the people to come to Samuel with a request. And they say in chapter 8, verse 5, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And that's where you see, I think, the, that the repentance of the last chapter in chapter 7 only went so deep. Um, but that the idolatry of their heart was actually still there. Uh, they still desired what the nations around them had and did. Interesting, too, is what they say over in verse 20 when they repeat that, that we may also be like all the nations, but they add this, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles for us. This is another reason we know the idolatry was still in their hearts because even though they had thrown away their little figurines in their houses, they still wanted the king to fight their battles for them just like they wanted the ark to do that back in chapter 4. They were treating their king like they did the ark, both of them, like a good luck charm, basically is what they're doing, like an idol. They were treating the idea uh, of both of these things the same. And we know... uh, that because when they say that our king may go out and fight our battles for us, we remember that God, God had said through Moses back in Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, when Moses told the people, the Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. When they're saying, they're, they're forgetting that, and they're saying we need a king to go out and fight our battles for us. Um, we're going to see, by the way, 
the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. We'll see that promise come, uh, come true in a later chapter in our section. But the people right here don't believe it. Well, Samuel was, was angered by their request because he knew that they were rejecting the Lord. Um, when they asked for a king, which in itself was not bad. Remember, in the, in the Abrahamic covenant in, in Genesis 15 or Genesis 17, God had said to Abraham, kings are going to come from you. And he had said in uh, Deuteronomy 17, in, in the law, in Deuteronomy 17, there's a whole chapter of when you have a king, here is what they are to do. It's in the law. So what's wrong with having a king? Nothing's wrong with having a king. It's the motive for which they asked for it. It was their motive in asking. But the Lord told Samuel, give them what they asked for. But the Lord said, tell them the truth, though. Okay? Give them what they're asking for, but you need to have a talk with them before. All right? And Samuel does. Read with me 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He, he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground uh, and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipments of chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and, and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Did you hear a repeated word in, that, in those verses? Take. He will take, he will take, he will take. Six times, six times, he will take, 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 he will take. All he will do is take. What do they receive in return? Not one thing is mentioned as what they will return. It's just what they will give to him and what he will take from them. And it says when they cry out to the Lord for his help with them, when their king fails them, the Lord will not always answer them right away. That's the last thing. The Lord will not answer you in that day to teach them the error of their sinful choices. But notice what verse 19 says. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and consequently of the Lord who told Samuel what to say. You remember when we were studying Romans this past year, way back in chapter 1, we were told three times in Romans chapter 1 that of, of, of people when they persist in a sinful way, God gives them up to their sinful ways. God gave them up. To, to the lusts of their hearts. God gave them up to do what ought not to be done. He gave them up, he gave them up, he gave them up three times um, because they stubbornly persisted in those sins, and that's what's happening here. And don't read this and say, dang, they were terrible. Like, they are us. We are they. Them? I don't know. We equal them. We're no different than them. Like, we are just as prone to trust in the wrong things very subtly. Um, when, we, when we see these kinds of descriptions of God's people, we need to reflect on our own hearts and on our own minds and ask, how, how am I prone to do the same thing, the exact same thing? And don't miss how the Lord just lets them go their own way. Y'all aren't all parents in this room yet. But for those of us who are parents, this is, I think, not unfamiliar territory in parenting skills. In a, in a thousand little things, here's how the conversations go. And you may be familiar with this because you were the kid. Kid, I want to do this. Parent, I don't think that's a good idea. Kid, you don't understand. It's fine. Just let me do it. Parent, let me go ahead and tell you how this thing is going to play out and all the bad stuff that's going to happen when you do that. Kid, nuh-uh. <laughs> Parent, okay, fine. 
go for it, but don't come back to me crying. That's exactly how parenting goes four or five times a week, and we see God treats us the same way. They want a king like all the other nations. Okay, go for it. Go for it. Here's how it's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen when you do that. You don't want to listen to me? Fine. Here, have your king. And we come to chapter 9, and here's the guy they're going to pick. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherot, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was, like, that's not just enough to say, like, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He was the handsomest guy in the whole country. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He was tall, dark, handsome, and rich. Well, they haven't picked him yet, but the Lord knows this is who they will desire. This is going to be the guy of their choosing. Why? We still pick them that way. We still pick leaders that way. Like, like we just we want rich people. We trust rich people, or we say, "Oh, they're they're rich. They know what they're doing, or they're tall, or they're whatever. They're attractive. They're they, we. It's all outward appearance, and we pick them that way." So the Lord orchestrated his uh, his anointing as king. He did it through his quiet providence over all things. How did that happen? Well, Saul's dad evidently had some donkeys that got lost, and uh, and he sends Saul and his servant. Go find my donkeys. And they looked all over the place. And they're going from place to place to place. Well, finally, in chapter 9, verse 5, tells us they come to the land of Zuth. And if you're a careful reader of 1 Samuel, you'll know from earlier in the book, hey, that's where Samuel was living, right? Just happened to be, you know. Zuth was the next place. Well, it dawned on Saul's servant, and I'm just summarizing the chapter, assuming some of you haven't read it, uh, it dawns on, on Saul's servant that there was a seer, a prophet, uh, who, who lived there, and maybe they should go ask him, where are the donkeys, right? And so they scrape up a little something to offer the seer, and they go up to the town where they are told they could find Samuel. And they find Samuel going up to a sacrifice that day, and God had already revealed to Samuel the day before that these guys would be coming. And Samuel basically tells them in uh, verses 19 and 20, summarizing. He just basically says, walk with me as I go to the sacrifice, and, and I'll talk to you. By the way, they have found your dad's donkeys. Also, didn't you know that, that you're the one that all Israel is looking for? And Saul was like, wait, 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 wait. Why, why are you saying that? I'm not, I'm, I'm not anybody. I'm just looking for donkeys, man. But after the, after the sacrifice, Samuel takes them to the sacrificial meal. He sits them at the head of the table, and, Saul, and, and he gives Saul the portion of food that was normally set aside for the priests. Samuel tells them he has a place for them to sleep, and, 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 and so sleep here, and in the morning I'll tell you what God has told me. That's where chapter 9 ends. And what do we learn, though, from this first section so far? Well, chapter 8 taught us that God often lets us have what we want, even when he knows it's not good, right? Chapter 9 shows us that God often gives us what we ask for in subtle ways, and that it often begins in a way that makes, me, makes us feel like we were right. Maybe, maybe, I was, maybe I wasn't wrong, because you know, things aren't, aren't going awry just yet. Why do I say that? Because at first glance, Saul seems kind of humble, right? Didn't you know you're the one that all Israel's looking for? And he's like, wait, 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 wait. I come from the tiniest tribe. Who am I? I'm a Benjamite. Why are you saying this to me? I'm not anybody. He seems kind of humble. I don't know. And when you come to the next chapters, there isn't a ton to dispel that notion and that perception. The only thing right we have right now that might make us a little suspicious about Saul are the wrong motives of the Israelites in desiring that kind of king, and just on the grounds of why Saul, wealthy, good-looking, tall, dark, and handsome. 
we know from experience, like I said, that we still choose people like that today, and experience tells us that doesn't always go well, right? But that brings us to the next section um, as we consider Saul's early success. So as we come into chapter 10, remember that Saul and his servant have spent the night where Samuel is. And in the morning, Samuel was going to deliver the word of the Lord to Saul. And when morning comes, Samuel anoints Saul with oil. And look at what he says in verse four, in verse 1. Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people, Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Now, before we get to what those signs would be, I think it's noteworthy here that twice Saul is said to be anointed as prince over Israel. Uh, now, you know and I know, and Scripture is not hiding, in fact, that he's being anointed as king, right? Uh, I mean, at the very end of this same chapter, in verse 24, they're going to cry out, long live the king, right? He's king, been anointed as king. But when the Lord is speaking to him in verse 1, why do you think he uses the word prince? Like, I'm anointing you as prince over my people. When God, is, 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 when, when, when God says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want, he's still going to be sovereign over it. And when God talks to Saul through Samuel, he is reminding him that even the king is a vice regent under the lordship of the God is king, right? You are, a, you are, a, you are not the king of kings. You are a vice regent under my sovereign hand. You're merely a, they call you a king, you're a prince under me, right? That's what that's saying. I think it's noteworthy. Um, this is made very clear to Saul. And so the Lord goes out of his way to assure Saul that he is being anointed as ruler over Israel. So I'm going to send you a bunch of signs. What are those signs in chapter 10? Well, sign one, on the way home, you're going to be by Rachel's tomb. You're going to meet two men at a specific place. You don't know them. They don't know you, but they're going to tell you your donkeys have been found. <laughs> like, that's pretty random. Um, and they're go by the way, they're going to be tra traveling to Bethel, okay? Uh, and then, then, then uh, well, that's sign two, actually. When, when sign two, when you keep going, there's going, you're going to meet three guys that are going to Bethel, and one guy is going to be carrying or pulling three goats, another guy is going to be carrying three loaves of bread, and the third guy's been carrying some wine. And they're going to give you two of those loaves of bread. Random, right? Sign two. That's it. Sign three. You're going to later meet up with a group of prophets who are just getting after it, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to prophesy too, Saul. Important to the story, chapter 10, verse 8 says, Samuel, after Samuel says all these things are going to happen, Samuel says, when all those things have happened, he says in chapter 10, verse 8, go to Gilgal and wait seven days for Samuel to show up. And I, he says, until I come to you and show you, no, no, he says, I, wait for Samuel, and Samuel says, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt sacrifices and to sacrifice. So just file that away. After all these signs happen, all these things happen, when Saul gets to, to Gilgal, wait there seven days and wait for Samuel to come and offer the sacrifices. Just file that away. Well, verse 9 says all of those things happened. God's quiet providence. And it says especially verse, uh, verse 9, God gave him another heart. The NIV says God changed his heart. One translation says God changed his inmost person. I don't believe that this means Saul was converted. Uh, I just think it means that God was turning his heart toward being king and, 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 and enabling him, by the way, to prophesy in that third sign. Saul did prophesy, and it amazed everybody. But an interesting thing happens. After all those three things happen, and he, pro he prophesies uh, in front of all those Philistines, and they're like, who is this guy? Um, an interesting thing happens. Saul goes home, 
Uh, and if you're, if you're looking in verse uh, 15, he goes home and Saul's uncle starts talking to him. And he says, tell me what Samuel said to you. Well, what, is, what, is, what does he say in verse 16? Saul said to his uncle, I, he told us that the donkeys had been found. That's all, he, that's all he said. He doesn't tell him about any of the other stuff. And that, God, yeah, seriously, if, if, if somebody came up to you and said, you're going to meet two guys and they're going to tell you about your donkeys that you don't know and they don't know you, and then you're going to meet three guys carrying goats, bread, and wine. They're going to give you two-thirds of their bread. And then you're going to prophesy? If all that stuff happened, wouldn't you be kind of shell-shocked by that? Like, wow! He's like, oh, he told us where they, the donkeys have been found. Didn't tell him about any of that other stuff. Why do you think? Is it humility? Is it fear? Like, well, in the second half of chapter 10, this is the point of this story. You're kind of like wondering, like, is it? Is it? That's what you're getting at. Well, in the second half of chapter 10, Samuel calls all Israel to Mitzpah and proclaims Saul as king over them because he had anointed him privately. Now he's going to proclaim to all Israel. He remind, In the second half of chapter 10, Saul, I mean, Samuel reminds the people of their sin again and their rejection of the Lord but because I'm going to show you who your king is, and they cast lots to narrow it down to Saul's family. But when they called for Saul, verse 22 says they couldn't find him. Uh, he was he was hiding himself among the baggage. That's the irony of all ironies in this part of First Samuel. Like in the last chapter, Saul and his servant they find Samuel. Uh, they found two men. They found three men who were carrying exactly those things. They, f- they found the prophets. I mean, they find, 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 find. You're going to find, you're going to find this. Forget, and then where's where, where Saul? Can't find him. Not to mention, it's pointed out again in verse 23 that he was head and shoulders taller than anybody else in Israel. Can't find him. He was hiding. It's another time you're asking why was it was it is it humility like is it is it fear is it a mix of both you do keep wondering after after what happens at the end of the chapter Saul when Saul is found and he is presented and in verse 24 people cry out long live the king it says most of the people that were in support of of him but verse 27 says some worthless fellows were against him that's verse 27. Incidentally, that word worthless, you keep seeing in 1 Samuel. Remember in chapter 1 when Eli thought Hannah was drunk and he, she was like, I'm not one of those worthless women. And then you realize Eli's got two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and they were called worthless guys. And now there's some worthless fellows who are against Saul. Well, how does Saul respond in verse, at the end of verse 28? It says he held his peace man, things are looking good. Like, what are we to make of it? Like, the the reader should be wondering at this point. Like, okay, they they were wrong in asking for this king in this way, but now they've got him, and like, he's not, he doesn't appear to be proud, he doesn't appear to be boastful, he's holding his peace versus those who are against him. Maybe he's not that bad. That brings us to chapter 11. We're not told... Uh, how much time had passed, probably not much, uh, but before the first crisis appears. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1 says, Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. You know this guy isn't good. His own name, Nahash, means snake. Like, it's just written in vivid color for us. Uh, and interesting, by the way, Nahash later on is going to be mentioned again as an ally of David. I don't know what happened in that time. He's no, up to no good here. But he comes up against these people, and they are terrified. Immediately, when he comes, they're so scared, they don't even want to fight. They're like, hey, can we offer ourselves to you to be your servants? He replies, well, I'll do that on one condition, that I can gouge out all your right eyes and bring disgrace on Israel. They were like, well, can you give us a week to think it over? Um, <laughs> 
And can we send messengers to see if somebody can come and save us? Nahash, Nahash uh, doesn't think anything's going to come of that. So he's like, sure, knock yourself out. Go send some messengers. Well, they get word to Saul, and Saul wonders why everyone is so scared. Verse 6 says that Saul, upon the Spirit of God, rushed upon Saul. And what does he do? He takes an ox, and he chops it up, and he sends all the pieces to the different territories. It's like, it's like the Godfather and the dead fish in the mailbox. But it's like, um, anyway, um, but they, like, all of a sudden the mailman comes, he brings you a part of an ox that's been chopped up. And he's, what, what he's basically saying, fight with us or die. Like, you're going to be like this ox if you don't. So in light of that, that pressure situation, Saul, it says, mustered 330,000 people. 300,000 from Israel, 30,000 from uh, Judah. And they struck down Nahash and the Ammonites. And listen to how completely uh, the victory is described at the end of verse 11. It says, those who survived of Nahash's army were scattered so that no two of them were left together. I mean, every man went his own way, complete. And it's, it's, again, it's at this point, I mean, things are looking great for Saul, right? Look at how the chapter ends. Um, after the battle, the people, the people come to, they're, they're like, hey, remember those worthless fellows? Like, why like you just you just beat the 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 Jabe, I mean uh, Nahash and his guys. I mean, like, look at this, uh, and 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 they 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 want to say, well, where are those guys who were against you? Let's go find them and kill them too. Um, but in verse thirteen, Saul forbid it, and the people renewed the kingdom there in Gilgal and reaffirmed their commitment to Saul as king. And the last word of the chapter is, Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Times are good, right? But this section, section sort of comes to a close. And by the way, where are they when all that happens? Gilgal, right? Just file that away. The, the, the section sort of comes to a close in the next chapter, chapter 12, with Samuel's farewell address that we opened our time with this morning. Um, Samuel brings a little dose of reality back to them. He begins by asking them, interestingly, to testify that he had never taken anything from him, from them. Why do you think he asked it that way? Remember, what, what, did, what was that repeated word in chapter 8 when Samuel's like, here's how the king's going to go? He's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take, he's going to take six times. Samuel's like, have I ever taken anything from you? I haven't. But then he said, Neither had the Lord. He reminded them of how the Lord had worked on their, on their behalf throughout all their history. And when they cried to him, he saved them. He saved them in Egypt. He saved them through the judges right up to Samuel's day. And he indicts them in verse 12. You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Remember that Saul is the word for asked. You have asked. And you saw all and he gave you Saul. Right? He has set a king over you. And he tells them that their well-being with that king in the future will depend on not only their obedience or disobedience, but the obedience and disobedience of their king. This is a pattern that's going to last all through the Old Testament on purpose, that the well-being of the people, of God's people, is going to be based on the righteousness or lack thereof of the king over them. And Christ that would ultimately point forward to Christ, who is our perfectly righteous king, and we are judged on the basis of our king. Well, here Samuel says the Lord is going to deal with them according to their and their king's obedience. And the Lord gives them a sign that he would keep his word on this point. He sends them a thundering rain during wheat harvest. And you're like, okay, great. Why is that, why is that a sign? Wheat harvest, dry season. It's like, it's like, it's like, rain in the desert like at the wrong time that would be amazing it, it struck fear in the people it was so it never happened <laughs> and they knew that they had sinned in asking for a king like they did well Samuel reminds them once more to be obedient but notice carefully very specifically what he says in verses 21 and 22 again in chapter 12 do not turn aside after empty things 
that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why will he not forsake them? For his great namesake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people. Two things are true. If they disobey and turn away from the Lord, they will bear the consequences of that. But ultimately, God is saying, the Lord will not ultimately turn away from you, but it's not for your sake, it's for his great name's sake. Right? That's the same way he treats us today, and that's our only hope, that God would not treat us for our sake, but for the sake of his great name, which is worth more than me. And he would be faithful to his promise, despite their sins and failures, to bring, to bring a true Savior who would conquer their greatest enemies. So Saul's early success and victories were were sort of faint pictures of the greater victory that the the ultimate future king would bring. But the rest of Saul's story shows so clearly that he's not that king who would bring them rest and salvation. We see that in the final section, chapters 13 to 15. These chapters just outline the steady decline of Saul. and what initially looked, maybe, maybe that's cracks. Okay, then you start, well, maybe that's not cracks. Well, okay, yeah, it is cracks. And, and, and Saul is not the king to save us. Chapter 13 begins saying how old Sam, uh, Samuel, uh, Saul was when he began to reign and how long he reigned. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky verse, uh, 13.1. Older, older editions of the ESV say, and Saul was years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for and two years over Israel. The newer ESV say Saul lived for one year and then became king. Uh, that's a little fuzzy, too. I don't think he was one year old. I think that's saying he, he had reigned for a year as king. But in, it's just weird, so it, it's not important. Um, what, what is important is what we're told in, in verse 2, that he chose 3,000 men. 2,000 men with him in Michmash and 1,000 men with his son Jonathan in Gibeah. Now look closely at verses 3 and 4. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet through all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the, the garrison, garrison of the Philistines. I cannot say that. Who defeated that garrison? Jonathan did. Who proclaimed? Saul did. Jonathan did it. Saul got the glory. Saul's initial, maybe it's humility, is starting to fade a little bit. The suspicion is confirmed when the chapter continues. First of all, again, I pointed out already, they are in Gilgal. Remember back in chapter 10, Samuel said, hey, when you get to Gilgal, Wait there seven days for me to come so I can offer sacrifices, right? Um, Well, there they are. They're in Gilgal, and they're waiting seven days for Samuel to come and offer sacrifices to the Lord. Well, while they're waiting there in Gilgal, the Philistines are gathering, and they're gathering strength for battle, and Israel was again terrified. Verse 6 of chapter 13 says that the people were hiding in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and cisterns. Verse 8 says that Saul waited the seven, seven days, but on the seventh day he was getting impatient because Philistines are pretty strong and they're coming. He's growing impatient, and he just assumed that Samuel's not coming like he said he would. And so what does Saul do? He offers the sacrifices himself. He, the king, assumes the role of a priest contrary to what God had commanded. And wouldn't you know, I mean, just wouldn't you know, as soon as he did that, Samuel walks up. And he said, what are you doing? Samuel showed up. And look at what, look at when, when, when Samuel says, what are you doing? Look at what Saul says in verses 11 and 12. When I, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and the, the Philistines had mustered at Migmash, I said, well, now the, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and I had to burn the, the offer the burnt offering. I had to. I didn't want to, but I had to. It was because the people were leaving. 
It was because you didn't show up on time. I needed the favor of the Lord, so I disobeyed the Lord. That's his logic. He wasn't repentant at all for going against the word of the Lord. And what had Samuel said in the last chapter, or in chapter 12? Obey you and your king, and it will go well. Disobey, and the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. And we will see the Lord make good on his promise here. Samuel says in verse 13, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with, with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom of Israel over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. There's that word prince again. And when it says the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, that is not like uh, David was a little precious moments character, and he's just seeking after the heart of God. He was a righteous guy. But when that particular phrase, that is God saying, you have had a man of your own choosing. I'm going to raise a man of my own choosing, of my heart, of my will, right? So the Lord is rejecting Saul, and the stage is now being set for David. But in the meantime, the Philistines are coming. We don't have time to get into all the details, but through a long set of circumstances, if you look down at verse 22, you learn that out of all the people of Israel, only Saul and Jonathan have weapons. Two guys. They don't even, there's not a blacksmith in Israel. They had to go to the Philistines to get their plows made. They didn't even have plows. They got, two guys have weapons. And that's how the chapter comes to a close. So chapter 13 closes. The Philistines are surrounding them. Like if you notice in verses 17 and 18, they're gathering and one company of Philistines go this way, another went that way, and another went that way. They were surrounded basically with no weapons except for Saul and Jonathan. Chapter 14, if you didn't read all this, if you'll just read the first half of chapter 14, it's, it's pretty awesome. Uh summarizing so much. Chapter 14 showed how, how Jonathan, that's Saul's son, and his armor bearer, they sneak out of the Israelite camp. And, and basically they say, let's go up to this garrison of the Philistines. They've got us surrounded, but let's go up to this garrison, and we're going we're gonna to hide in plain sight. And if, if the Philistines see us and they say, come here, we want to show you something, they say, then we'll know that the Lord has given them into our hand. So they do. And they say, come here. Let me show you something. And they're like, sweet. And they go, and it says, it says that Jonathan, with one blow, one blow, it kills like 20. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it kills like 20. Or he, he, they fall down before Jonathan, and his armor bearer kills them. And, 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 and then it says, just throughout the battle, it says that, that the Lord, through them alone, the Lord miraculously routed all those Philistines. He caused the people to fall down before Jonathan. He caused a panic. He caused, these are the language of this chapter. He caused a panic. He caused a great confusion such that how are, because you have the question, how, are, how if, if you've got Israel and only two men have weapons, and they're surrounded by Philistines who have a lot of weapons how are they going to win that battle what does the Lord do he causes a panic a tumult and a great confusion and gives them an earthquake on top of that and they start killing each other they just kill each other and so verse 23 of 14 says well the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth Avon well, then the next section is Saul's rash vow, which basically it switches scenes from Jonathan to Saul. And Saul had, he was trusting in his own plans and in his own ingenuity. He still didn't know all that had happened with Jonathan. He didn't even know he was out of the camp. And he made a foolish vow that any of his soldiers who ate food and didn't fast until the battle was over would be put to death. He didn't know that Jonathan had snuck out. And when Jonathan was coming back from his good times, 
He ate some honey. And so Saul almost followed through with his vow to put his own son to death, but all the people didn't allow it. Saul was trusting in all human means for his success. Look in chapter 14, verse 52, how that chapter ends. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And where was Saul's trust? When Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached himself to him, him to himself. Saul was, Saul was trusting in human means to be his glory. But chapter 15 represents the final rejection of Saul by the Lord. When the Lord told Saul through Samuel to devote the Amalekites to destruction, he didn't do it. And the Lord said to Samuel in verse 10 that he had regretted to make Saul king. By the way, verse 29 says that's figurative language. God doesn't regret anything. That's just figurative language. The Lord finally says at the end of verse 23 because, to Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Verse 24 says that Saul, Saul feared the people. He admitted it. In verse 30, he only cared about being honored in front of the elders. And the chapter ends by telling us that Samuel grieved over Saul until the day that he died. Our time's up, but what do we learn from all of this? What do we learn about ourselves? We, we learn that we often ask for things that the Lord knows is not best for us, but He gives it to us anyway to teach us the sinfulness of, of our choices and of our actions. And sometimes we make those sinful choices, and initially it doesn't appear that it was a bad choice, but let some time go by. And it'll, it, you'll realize it was, a, it was a foolish choice, and you should have listened to the people who had wisdom over you. What do you learn from Saul? Well, don't trust in, in human princes. You learn that the Lord will save his people through a king, but it's not going to be one of our choosing. It's going to be the one of his choosing. What do you learn about God? At the very least, he is just, he is patient, and he's sovereign. There's a lot, a lot to learn in these chapters. If you haven't read them carefully for yourselves yet, I encourage you to do so uh, maybe this afternoon. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and thank you for this word. I pray that you would help us to think um, diligently on, um, on ourselves, on you, and what, what we can see about ourselves and about you uh, in these chapters, Lord. Uh, thank you that uh, you have you have mercy on us, and that you have mercy on us, not because we deserve it, but because your great name deserves uh, it. And you, you, you have chosen to give yourself glory through the salvation of sinners. Thank you that you are merciful for your great name's sake. Thank you that uh, you have given us a righteous king who, um, by whom we are judged on his righteousness. And uh, Lord, help us to listen to the wisdom of your word and not go our own way. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.